And I think that the problem that we encounter so often is that we think of our work as promotion, but our work isn't promotion, it's market research. When we put out ideas, we put out our concepts, basically people see it and they either ignore it or they respond to it. Welcome to Grounded Content. I'm your host, Marion Abrams. Today, I have a second interview with Michael Roderick. If you haven't heard the first, go back and listen to it. It's about how to create shareable content. But today, we're going to cover two topics, and they both overlap. One is how Michael Roderick has managed to write and send an email to his list every day, Monday through Friday, for five years. Every single day. So that part relates to the creative challenges that I discussed in last week's episode, and then I talked about it She Podcast Live, and I will have another episode next week where I finish explaining how to execute that process. But the other thing we're going to talk about in this episode is how he's used these emails that he sends out, how he's grown his list, and how he uses the emails both as market research and as content strategy. Before we hop into the conversation, I want to tell you about the friend hats that I've designed. I wanted to make some swag that people could buy to support the Grounded Content Podcast. And I had this idea. It feels like we need a new way to signal good intentions. So what about the word friend? What if we used friend as a universal greeting? What if you were to walk down the street wearing a hat or a t-shirt or a sweatshirt that said in big, bold letters, friend? You can see a picture of the hat or of the mug, and you can order them at madmotion.com slash groundedpodcast. That's madmotion.com slash grounded podcast. Of course, that's also where you can find this show. I'll be back at the end of the episode to wrap things up. Michael Roderick, welcome back to Grounded Content. It's always so fun to have guests back. So I'm just looking forward to not only the really valuable information this will give the listeners, but also I think it'll be fun to dig in and find out a little bit more about this. And so what this is, right, I haven't told the listeners, you and I know, we were at a mixer that you and Jason Van Orden hosted, and you presented a little bit about how you have done this email list that you have where you create content. You do an email every day, and you've been doing it for how long? Since 2017. So five days a week, you are writing an email and sending it out since 2017. Yes. Without fail. Without fail. (laughs) Have you missed a day, one day? If I've missed, it's probably been like a technical thing where I either scheduled it wrong and it came out the following day or like two came out on the same day or something like that. But since 2017, I have never not written Monday through Friday. Like there hasn't been one day where I haven't sat down and written something that would go out to the list. (laughs) So there's two places I think it'd be really interesting to go for the audience because as content creators, especially as content creators who are doing it kind of professionally, first of all, just how do you drive yourself to generate ideas that consistently and regularly? And then also as a growth tactic, you know, how have you used your email? But let's start with what drove you to start this? I mean, what made you think it would be a good idea to send an email every day? So there's a copywriter named Ben Settle who also writes daily, and he has a newsletter that's actually a print newsletter. So he sends you this print newsletter every month, 
And when you sign up for this newsletter, you basically get like a handbook about writing emails and sort of like the ways that he thinks about it. And he gives you a challenge in that little booklet. And the challenge is to write daily for 30 days. And at the time, I had written daily before because I had had a blog when I was a producer and I had put out a lot of content during that time. But I hadn't done any sort of consistent writing before I had gotten that handbook. And I basically just said, okay, it's a 30-day challenge. Like, I'm sure I can sort of make it work. And I started doing it and I just found that I loved it. Like I just gravitated so much towards it. And by the time I was done with those 30 days, I had started to really build a following. I had started to get some opportunities. I had started to get some clients. Like a bunch of things really moved forward for me by writing this daily email. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just kind of keep doing it. And I haven't stopped. That's incredible. Do you think there was something about that commitment to do 30 days that jump-started you in a unique way? Do you think there was something about that early commitment? Yeah, I think so. And I think that there's this aspect of we sometimes need some kind of challenge in order to get us over that initial hump. And I actually can relate this to so many other things in my life where there were things that I wanted to change. There were things that I wanted to do, but it wasn't until somebody else said to me, okay, my challenge for you, the thing I want you to try to do, you know, over the next week is not do this or, you know, do this. And that was the thing that got me on doing whatever that activity was, even if I had put off that activity forever. And I remember I've been working with a health coach. And one of the things that happened was this suggestion of, okay, for the next week, you're going to try to not drink any soda and just drink seltzer instead. And if you had asked me to do that before all of that, without that sort of challenge construct, I would have been like, nope, I can't do it. Can't do it. But then it was like, no, I think I could. I think I could do this. I think the challenge piece is a major part of the psychology of all of this. I think that we have a lot of difficulty in challenging ourselves because it's so easy for us to kind of make concessions and sort of be like, I think I can let this slide. But the second that somebody else is on the outside sort of presenting this challenge, we have this feeling, at least I know I do, of like, you don't want to disappoint that other person. And then you also want to prove to yourself that you can do it because you have this sense that maybe they might doubt that you do. You know, there's that kind of like interesting psychology at play there. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, there's like three things I'm already, you know, wound up about from what you've said so far. And the first is you said something about that structure. I do think this sounds like self helpy. But I think success becomes a habit in a sense. So like once you've done it with your email and you're like, oh, I can make a commitment to write every day and I was able to do it, that you can then transfer that into when somebody calls me out to let go of soda for a week, like I know I'm capable and I do think there's something to that. But I'd like to ask you about the external nature. So for me, I challenged myself at one point to do 30 days of post a video every day. 
And for me, it was like, one, I definitely was a way to sort of harness peer pressure because I did say it publicly and then felt I had to keep my word to the public, you know, not that anybody was watching, but me. But also, I feel like it gave me with a creative challenge, I feel like it kind of gave me an excuse in a sense so that I could say, I know this isn't that great, but I have to do today's. Whereas if I didn't have that challenge out there, I might have sort of said, that's not good enough. Do you think there's an internal piece to that too? I do. And I think that basically everything that we do gets slowed down as a result of our expectations of ourselves. So if we have high expectations of ourselves to sort of deliver something, we will procrastinate and put that thing off over and over and over again because we're thinking about like, well, what is this perfect version of this thing that I have in my head? Like, what is this amazing thing that I'm going to create? And we sort of just like live in this place of, I call it polishing the car, but never driving it, where basically we're sort of like always kind of narrowing the thing down, carving it out, really trying to make it perfect or whatever it is in our mind. And as a result, we have that huge expectation. So we keep pushing the thing off because we think it's not ready. And what I find is that if we instead write without expectation of response, we talk about give without expectation of return. It's like write without expectation of response, create without holding this expectation that it has to be something, then that informs consistency. Because if you're able to basically say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to put this out there and some people might respond, some people might not, and whatever, we'll see kind of how it goes. You're in a much, much better place. And I think that the problem that we encounter so often is that we think of our work as promotion, but our work isn't promotion. It's market research. When we put out ideas, when we put out our concepts, basically people see it and they either ignore it or they respond to it. And what I always look for is I look for unprovoked response. So I look for, will somebody say something about something I've written or something that I've created without me asking them what they thought of it? Because if it drives them that much and they're like, I need to say something, I need to write back, that tells me that there is something there. And that there is something there that I probably need to go much, much deeper into. So that's my market research. Now I know, okay, this is a topic that people really care about because they're responding without me asking them to. So is there more that needs to be written about this? Is there a product that needs to be created about this pain point that I have just sort of described or sort of written down? So that's the way I'm always thinking. I assume there have to be some kind of guardrails because one of the things I've noticed, unfortunately, is whenever I do, I, I don't do it often, but there's a few times where I've done a social media post where I'm, I'm complaining, where I say like, oh, this idiot, I never name names, but it's like, oh, I got another <laughs> one of these, you know, insert negative interaction with the general public or a client or, a, you know, whatever, or an employee, whatever it is, those inevitably get the best response. And even though they get their best response, I'm not interested in creating more of that kind of content. So there must be some guardrails. How do you kind of balance like what it is that you want to be writing about and discovering 
with what it is you are getting positive response. Like I'm sure if you said like, oh my God, I'm heartbroken, my cat died, like you'd probably get a great response. But you know, is that really what you're looking for? The way that I like to think about this is these are clues as to what matters to people. It's not a definitive, like, I have to write about this, right? So like if we were to take your example of you do this rant, and you get a lot of response, you know, sort of from this rant, it doesn't necessarily mean that people always want rants. It just means that that touched something for them that that like hit something for them. So that means that you know that that's something that these people care about. So you may not want to create another rant, but you may want to write a piece about here are some of the things that I've seen that have not worked really well or tell a story about somebody's outreach not working well or somebody having a bad experience and then teach some kind of lesson sort of based on that type of thing. And that's a whole different piece than a rant. So you can look at the zeitgeist behind the response and then craft content and ideas and things based off of that, as opposed to saying, oh, well, I wrote it this way. So that means that everybody wants me to keep writing this exact same thing. So when you are looking at the response, you're using this content as a way to do your market research. Do you look at things like open rates and click-through rates, or do you just see when do people respond to the email? I definitely pay attention to open rates and click-through rates. You know, I want to see, are people actually doing something with this information? But then that's also, in addition to that, it's informed by these responses. So the thing is, and this is really important if you're writing for the purpose of growing the business, like if you're trying to sell something, people could love you and respond like crazy to that email. But if they're not clicking that sign up link or that buy link, the business is not going to grow. So it's really important to pay attention to that and figure out, okay, yeah, this is getting a lot of opens. This is getting a lot of responses. People are telling me it resonates with them. But if they're not clicking and buying or they're not clicking and signing up, why is that? What am I missing? And that's one of the best ways to start to refine an offer that you're developing and that you're creating because you can start to see, okay, this is the thing that people respond to, but they're not clicking to learn more about it. So I'm obviously missing something in helping them understand why they should do this course or follow this program or do whatever this you know sort of next thing is. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to the rant, you know, I think people respond to the rant because they like me and they're like, that's terrible that you had to go through that. But it's not anything that's beneficial to my business or has anything to do with like what I'm about or what I'm selling or anything like that. I didn't know we were going to go this way, but certainly with like content marketing, which I think you would call your email content marketing, there's a temptation to think that it should be some kind of sales copy. And I feel like there's a mysterious magic that you are kind of finding, which is, your emails are very human, they're very organic, but yet they are driving people in a way to buy your product. What is that magic mix? So ultimately, it comes down to, I refer to it as covert selling as opposed to overt selling. So most marketing messages that you're going to see usually fall into more of an overt selling model where they're basically saying like, 
okay, here's your problem, or here's this problem that this other person had, and here's why you should buy this thing, and here are all the benefits, and you know all of this other stuff, or like come to my webinar, blah blah blah. And the thing is, there's a portion of the market that will follow through on a very, very overt sales-oriented email. There are even people who will read a sales pitch every single day and gladly buy. There's always a percentage. But most people have no desire to be pitched to on a regular basis. So what you want to do is you want to think about how can I help them understand what their challenge is and then present to them that there might be an option to dealing with that challenge if they so choose to join me. For me, I teach a class on this consistent writing sort of piece of things. So I might write something that discusses this idea of polishing the car but never driving it. And I might spend a good portion of that email sort of talking about the psychology that I just talked about and breaking down these types of things. And then I might say something along the lines of, you know, and the thing that I see time and time again is that the one reason why people don't actually drive that car is that there is no accountability in place. We're not able to be accountable to ourselves. And that may be my big reveal or sort of the big idea of that email. And then if I say, you know, this is one of the core reasons I decided to create a cohort-based model so that people have the level of accountability and they're able to work on their writing with each other. Well, now, if you were identifying with that email all the way through, You're going to at the very least be curious. You're going to want to click through and see, well, what is he actually doing there? Like, what is he teaching? And I'm not saying click and buy it. I'm just saying if you want to just kind of see how I might be dealing with this problem, feel free to pop over here. What are some of the things that you think make somebody more successful or more likely to be successful with a challenge like this, you know, if they were to challenge themselves to write every day for 30 days or to write five days a week for, you know, a month or whatever that is. If you're thinking about sort of like, what are kind of the starting points? Like, what are the three main things I really need to consider? I call them the three P's and that's priming, prioritizing, and permission to suck. So priming is this aspect of the number one reason why we don't do the writing that we need to do is that we sit down expecting it to all come at once. The number of people who have said, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to write a post or I'm going to come up with content who sit down and expect somehow to will their mind to form something amazing that's been sort of in their head. It's staggering. Our brains do not work that way. We do not have the flash of inspiration that we see in all of the TV shows and movies where we sit down with our quill and suddenly realize this is the opus that I need to, you know, share with the world. All of that happens before the writing. 
There's this really great quote by Justine Musk, which is that the reading is the inhale and the writing is the exhale, which I absolutely love. I just, you know, I think it's such a great point. And the thing is, if your brain doesn't have any information to process, you're going to feel like you are trying to squeeze blood from a stone when it comes to creating your own stuff. So the very first thing is to actually start to look at what am I consuming? Am I consuming creative content that will get my brain working, that will get me to start thinking? So you always have to start from there. You have to think about how am I making sure that there is stuff that's kind of coming into my orbit so that my brain can start processing something that isn't my own thoughts? So that's the first main key of priming. And I think it's one of the things that most people forget about. The second is this aspect of go through your day with the eyes of a writer. So think about everything that you're experiencing from the standpoint of what would I write about in this day? And the way that I like to describe it is I call it looking for color. So I go through my day. Most of the things in that day are in black and white. You know, most of the things are routine and we all have this. We all have these moments throughout our day that are just like, we do it every day and it's not actually that interesting. And it's, you know, we just kind of go through. But then every so often at various points in the day, there are these moments of color where something is just a little different or something is just kind of interesting or somebody says something that kind of piques our imagination or whatever it is. So what I do personally is I've got my Evernote and anytime I see a moment of color, I jot down, you know, one or two of those things. And then I've got prompts for the future. I've got things that I can look at and say, oh, well, that was really interesting. How would I write about that? And I'll just have these moments. I'll give you an example. I make hard-boiled eggs in the morning. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about making hard-boiled eggs is that if you don't do it just right, peeling those eggs is a pain in the butt. But if you do it right, it takes like no effort whatsoever to peel those eggs. Okay. I'm going to have to ask you this off air because I don't want to hold up the podcast, but you've definitely engaged my curiosity. (laughs) We're going to save that for later. You have to subscribe to Michael's email to find out about the hard boiled eggs. (laughs) I can definitely share the thing about the eggs, right? But the thing is, I was, you know, peeling those eggs, going through sort of that process. And I had a moment where I was like, this is a metaphor. There is something here that I could kind of play around with, that I could write about, that I could sort of, you know, manage. And now I've got this idea that somewhere down the line, if there's something that fits in, I can say like, oh yeah, that's where the egg metaphor could go in. Or that's where that story goes. I interviewed Chris Brogan about story, about using story, right? And he said, very similar, he said he collects these little pieces all throughout the day, and then you can deploy them. You know, you're ready. He wasn't really talking about writing, but he was talking about having all these little kind of bricks of anecdotes or story or pieces that you're ready to kind of deploy at the appropriate situations. 
and you have to start collecting them. I think, like you say, it's not something we think about a lot that how much of being a great storyteller or a great writer is really more about the inhale. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like going through that process. Once we start kind of filling ourselves up with all of that stuff, the writing piece, the sitting down to write, we've actually got a lot of material sort of ready to go by the time that that happens, especially if we've kind of gone through our day and we've collected a lot. Like by the time we sit down, it's like there's lots of ideas kind of percolating and sort of popping through. And then it's just this aspect of, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do it. And I think that's another value, right, of making that commitment to the 30 days because you kind of have that looming deadline all day saying, I know I need to have something for today. And so it keeps you focused. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It keeps you on track, you know, in regards to that, which leads to the second piece, which is the prioritization. And the thing that happens more often than not is that anything that will serve us, we do not take care of at all. Anything that will serve other people, we will give it like the biggest priority. We'll give it the most attention. We'll just like do everything that we can to sort of satisfy that other person's desires or needs. But if it comes down to us, if it comes down to something that is actually going to help us, that is actually going to support us, we will put it to the side. We will choose to help someone else. We will do anything imaginable rather than do that thing that actually is going to support us. I'm clicking like the heart thumbs up button. Yeah. <laughs> like as if this were an Instagram live or LinkedIn live, like the little hearts are floating up right now. Exactly, exactly, right? And we feel this, we go through this. So the thing is, with the things for us, we have to attach the same level of prioritization that we give to other people's things. So if we want to write, and we want to write on a consistent basis, then it does have to be in our calendar. Like there has to be a choice, a conscious choice where we say, okay, at this time, I am going to do this work. And personally, for me, my writing time is at the very end of the day. So once the day is over, that is my creative time. That is my time to basically squeeze out that sponge and get everything that I can get out of it. That's my time for that. And the thing is, it wasn't my time a number of months ago. A number of months ago, my time was 5 a.m. But, you know, when you have a newborn, 5 a.m. is not the time that you're going to be writing anymore, right? (laughs) It's just not going to happen. So that time had to shift. But the thing is, it was scheduled. It becomes part of the day. It becomes part of the routine. So this prioritization piece is you have to sit down and say, If this thing has the honor of being part of my day, then I need to honor my commitment to it. This reminds me kind of Stephen Pressfield, this idea that like you just have to set a time and sit down, you know, and he talks about the muse, which, you know, we could talk about that however you want, but like that the muse won't come to you if you don't actually sort of sit down and get your pen ready and do your whole kind of ritual. And I want to say something about that. Don't let ritual cause you to not do the work. Great point. 
I see lots and lots of people who want it to be this like lovely ritual and then they never get the work done. And that actually ties to the last piece, which is permission to suck. Because permission to suck, it's all about this idea of letting go of these expectations and of all of this, you know, perfection and all of these other things that keep sort of popping up, like just letting go of all of that stuff and basically saying, okay, I'm just going to do this work and I'm going to see what happens. And the thing I often like to say about permission to suck is that I give myself permission to suck every time I sit down to write something because I have the true understanding that there is no way that I can be consistent and brilliant. Certain things are going to really hit. Certain things are not going to hit. And then even more importantly, I don't know what's going to hit. I have no idea what the market is going to want to listen to, read, pay attention to because I'm still doing the market research. So when I get into that space, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, this thing could be awful. This thing could be the worst thing I've ever written. And the funniest thing about that is there are times where I'm like, oh, man, I crapped that out. That's like, what the heck was that? And then that's the thing that everybody wants more of. I think it's such a good point that you're making. Like, you probably know better than anyone else what your readers are going to respond to. But if you don't try new things, you're never going to develop new knowledge. So you would have the five things that they responded to last year. But if you don't keep just kind of throwing new things into the mix, you will never learn anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And on the other side, like on the side of the reader, readers, you know, get into routines themselves. So like if I'm talking about the same five things over and over and over again, eventually I'm just going to become white noise. No matter how interesting those topics are, I've got to think about how do I change that? How do I switch that up enough that I break some of those patterns so that they don't feel like they can predict every single thing that I'm going to write? Now, that's really interesting because one of the things I find with podcasts, especially like ones that have been going for a long time, is that a lot of the time the hosts say, like, I feel like I've said everything because they said that they have all their messages, they've gotten them all out. But what they don't realize is, number one, there's new people coming on board. And number two, life is not like that. Think about how many times you've heard the same thing a oh, yeah. hundred times and all of a sudden it, you get it in a new way. Or you just need that reinforcement. You know, you sign up for Michael's email because you're like, I just need that little refresher every day. So it's interesting. I wonder how you, I hadn't thought about the need to keep it fresh. And I think you have to find a balance between those two. Not be afraid to kind of say the same thing again, but to keep experimenting with new things too. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it comes down to the aspect of like nothing is actually original when we really kind of boil it down, right? There is nothing that we're going to come up with that nobody else has ever come up with. It's just we're going to position that idea in a different way. And the thing that we forget about most of the time is that ideas are not immune to positioning. We need to position our ideas. Like if there's a concept, we can't just parrot how somebody else explained that concept or talked about that concept. We have to add something to it from our own perspective, from our own angle, using our own story. You know, we may feel like we've said this a dozen times, but we haven't said it this way. So basically, 
there are ideas that they're said all the time and like people sort of hear them all the time. And because of that, they're not that interesting anymore. I could change the positioning in other ways. I could say that, you know, if everybody's telling you to do something really, really big and really, really broad, and I make an argument that you should actually focus on a very, very small group of people, I'm changing the positioning. I'm adjusting those levers. And that's how you think about positioning ideas. I love it. So I want the audience to know that this is not like Michael Roderick's build his email list tour at all. (laughs) I reached out to him and said, I'm excited by this idea. Will you come back on and talk about it? Having said all that, if people do want to sign up for your email list, because they probably do after this, how do they do that? Sure, sure. So they could just go to smallpondenterprises.com and they'll get a nice little freebie and they'll get on the list and they'll get an invite to it and all that fun stuff. So yeah, just pop over there and you'll be able to join in on the fun. All right. Any last words of advice for people who are thinking about trying to create content and maybe want to give themselves a challenge of some kind to do it? Yeah, I would say think about this idea of permission to suck. And do what I like to refer to as the minimum viable action. There's a minimum viable product. There's the idea of sort of like what's going to be the simplest thing that you can create. And then there's the minimum viable action. So the minimum viable action for you might be, okay, I want to write. So my minimum viable action is I'm going to open up my laptop. Or I want to write. So my minimum viable action is that I'm going to open up whatever my word sort of processor thing is, and I'm going to commit to writing at least one sentence. And most of the time, if you do the minimum viable action, you will do far more than the minimum viable action. So what did you think? There were a couple ideas that I really liked. One was how Michael Roderick used that structure he launched with the 30-day challenge and how that helped him to grow into an effective content strategy. I also like the idea of permission to suck at things. That's a big part of doing these creative challenges. It gives you an excuse, really, to put up content. It makes you put up content, however you want to look at that. And then this other idea that I really like was to think about your content strategy as market research. What are your listeners, what are your readers, what are your viewers responding to? And look at it in a holistic approach, in the way that Michael talked about it. Look at what emails or what videos or what podcast episodes generate responses you haven't even asked for from your readers or your listeners, but also check that against your business goals. Are they signing up for your email list or buying your products? So those multiple data points will give you a holistic sense of what is working for you. And I love that idea. So if there's one takeaway from this episode, okay, I can't settle it to one takeaway. If there's two takeaways from this episode, I would say one, think about using these creative challenges, this strategy, which I explain in last week's episode, and I explain even more in next week's episode to make a breakthrough in your career, in your life, in your personal life, or especially in the content you're making or wish to make. And then the second piece that I think is so important is how are you using your content as market research? All right, I will be back next week with a solo episode where I finish the conversation about creative challenges and I talked about how you make one and the psychology involved, the social science involved in being successful. Thank you one more time to Michael Roderick for coming back on the show. 
If you want to sign up for his email list, you can go to his website, which is smallpondenterprises.com. And thank you, Chris Zarnock, for editing the show. If you want to reach out to me, I always love to hear from you. And when you do, I haven't been asking this, but when you do reach out to me, let me know if it's okay to share what you say on the podcast, because I'd love to read some of your comments. And I have neglected to ask that question, whether I have your permission. All right, see you next time.